Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So I was blown away by the documentary The James coming on HBO Max on June 8th. It's the story of a group of young students, an underground collective called the Janes, who helped thousands of women access safe abortion pre-Roe v. Wade in the late 60s, early 70s. In the film, we meet the women at the center of the organization, see how they set it all up, the planning, the code names, the safe houses. It's almost like an edge-of-your-seat caper movie, all the while they're saving countless lives. But it's also a chilling reminder of what's to come, as Roe v. Wade hangs in the balance. A leaked draft opinion suggests that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe, and states across the U.S. are rolling back access to abortion. This film seems vital. We were ordinary women, trying to save women's lives. But we were criminals. We were felons. For most of the nation, in 72, abortion was illegal. We had to go underground. The woman would be given the address to the front. It was probably obvious to neighbors what was going on. We came to the surface from other things, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement. You couldn't not pay attention to what was going on. Fetal death is murder. You could not work as a pregnant woman. If you weren't married, you were out of luck. They were terrible situations. The septic abortion word was full every day. Women did awful things. They were literally dying because they were women. So we thought we can be of use. I said, we could use my phone, but change it so that they don't ask for Eleanor. How about Jane? Nobody's called Jane anymore. We had the phone numbers on bulletin boards around Chicago. Pregnant call Jane. The clientele included daughters, wives, mistresses of police, state's attorney, judges. It dawned on me how big an issue this was. Directors, Emma Pildes and Tia Lesson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us, Christina. The Emma, I want to start because I understand that you have a family connection to this story. Could you explain? Yeah. So Daniel Arcana, who's one of the other producers on, on the film, a wonderful producer in his own right, but also happens to be my brother. Uh, we both have a family connection to this story. Daniel's mother is Judith, um, who was one of the Janes. And the father that we share is, is Michael, um, who is the lawyer, the radical lawyer in the film. Daniel had the smarts to start developing this, pull this out of our family history and start developing this 2016. Quite an election year. And, really? Um, <laughs> 
and it, you know, and we all wanted to do something. And um, this was something we sort of had in our back pockets. So we dragged Tia into it. Um, I had known and admired Tia for a very long time, personally and professionally. So, so I think everybody was just feeling anxious to make a contribution. So Tia, around the time when you, this story starts, when the Janes were forming, can you talk a little bit about the situation for women then seeking abortions in Chicago and across the U.S.? Well, in most of the country, including in Illinois, abortion was illegal and providers were subject to prosecution and prison sentences. And the women they served, you know, were intimidated and in some cases interrogated and in many states also subject to prosecution. So there, there was also, you know, a great deal of stigma around abortion as a healthcare procedure. There was stigma around on sex out of wedlock, for sure. But when abortion is criminalized, you know, women still get abortions. They just don't have necessarily options for safe and affordable ones. And so throughout the country, even given the felony consequences for seeking out this kind of abortion care, there, you know, there, where there's a will, there's a way, you know, and sometimes that way was dangerous, you know, yeah, even the mob. The mob was involved. It was an illegal activity. It was, you know, could be very lucrative because at that time, you know, charging anywhere from five hundred to a thousand, two thousand dollars in today's dollars, many thousands of dollars, you know, to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. And if you weren't able to connect with a physician who was willing to take that risk and potentially lose their medical license on top of their jail time then um, you had fewer choices and the mob was one of those choices. They were exploiting the situation. Of course, if you didn't even have access to the mob, you know, women took matters into their own hands and would try to self-induce. In many cases, you know, ended up in the hospital hemorrhaging or with infections. And we learned that there were septic abortion wards, not just in Chicago at Cook County Hospital, but all over the country in public hospitals that were dumping grounds, you know, for women who had tried to self-induce or who had been harmed by, you know, someone else. And the lucky ones survived. You know, the unlucky ones, you know, might have been rendered infertile and the very unlucky ones didn't survive. They, they, they went to the morgue. So it was a very... At least once a week, you said, and someone died in, in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, we know from Judith Reagan's book that thousands of women were admitted to Cook County Hospital and at, at that time. And, and when you were admitted to Cook County Hospital, you were subject also to interrogation by the police. So probably countless women didn't even make it to the hospital. We don't, we don't know what became of them. Mm. Um, but we do know, yes, there were thousands of women at that time. And, and the doctor that we interviewed, Dr. Alan Wigeland, who was a resident, told us that every week he would call the morgue because someone had died. Emma, who, who were the Janes? You know, we like to say they were a group of, of extraordinary women, but they, they tend to balk <laughs> at that with good reason. You know, I mean, I think that the ethos of, of them then and, and them now is that, you know, anybody has the ability to be decent and to help one another. A lot of people want to call them heroes. But that's it just it goes against what they're trying to do, which they call themselves ordinary women. 
they felt a moral obligation, sort of in the same way that they were willing to sit in our in front of our cameras so many years later and make another contribution and be called to duty yet again. I mean, they really just felt that it was their obligation to help women that were dying. They were 19. They were so young, college students. Yeah, I mean... I don't know what I was doing when I was 19, but... Not this! <laughs> but there was a void that needed to be filled that um, our healthcare system and our government was failing us. And so they put, laid it all on the line because because they valued women's lives. So they were a group who met in college and got together for this, many of them from other organizations during that time, sort of anti-war things. But one of the things that's so fascinating and that almost makes your documentary like a crying caper um, is the organization and the planning. Pretty incredible. Tia, can you talk a little bit about their setup, what it looked like on a day when they were actually helping a woman? This was an incredibly well-organized group of women. Many of them had come out of the civil rights movement, out of the anti-war movement, out of the student movement. And, you know, they had some organizing skills. Many of them were homemakers and, and mothers. And so they had a wealth of skills as well and, and resources. And they were pretty, you know, resourceful. And, and what they did was they set up a hotline that was connected to a tape recorder and they put up posters around town and they put up ads in local papers, you know, pregnant, don't want to be, call Jane. And Jane was just the the, the name they chose um, as, as a way to anonymize their involvement in the service. And so women would call, leave messages on this machine and the Janes would call them back and take down their information, medical information, the number of weeks they were in their pregnancy and then they would arrange to meet and one by one they would be counseled you know these were women who had already decided by and large to terminate the pregnancies they just needed a way to do it and so they would um so the janes would meet with them one-on-one -on -one in their homes and explain the procedure explain the setup and answer any questions after that counseling session they would schedule a, a date, a time, and a place to meet. The Janes organized three days a week. They would gather at a place they called the front, which was essentially a waiting room. And and it was a new safe house every week. That's right. They, they were a roving operation. They were trying to keep one step ahead of the law, you know, because this was illegal. And they were also trying to protect the privacy of the women and also the safety of the doctors. They arranged to do the procedures at an entirely different location, sometimes across town. And um, one Jane would ferry the women back and forth between the waiting room, you know, and what they called the place where they would actually conduct the procedure. So the, the place was another apartment that was set up comfortably and hygienically and, um, to provide the procedure. And uh, at first relied on doctors, they outsourced found doctors who are willing to be of use and of help and risk their license. And one by one, those doctors got arrested and were out of service. And they found um, a gentleman who presented himself as a doctor, but it turned out he had no medical license. He did have training, however. And once they found out that he wasn't a doctor, they realized that this is something they could potentially learn themselves. You know, the attraction of that was that they would be able to 
offer the abortion care entirely for free and not charge the women of no means. It was an enormous amount of responsibility and it took a lot of courage and frankly, you know, a lot of guts to break, not only break the law, but to to perform this procedure. Thankfully, abortion, what we've learned is a fairly, it's a fairly common and very safe medical procedure if done under the right and safe circumstances. And then after the pregnancy was terminated, there was usually some feeling of relief on behalf of the women they served. And over time, they served about 11,000 people. And these are people who traveled not only throughout Chicago, but throughout the Midwest, mm-hmm. you know, to, to get their help. And and then they would follow up after after the procedure to make sure there were no complications to make, to answer any questions. Which is also yeah. incredible that they, that they kept this contact, which certainly seemed to be missing with the ones who were doing it, you know, on their own or illegally or with the mob. Exactly. And, you know, in towards the end, you know, they were offering pap smears, you know, because these are largely women who didn't have access to medical services. Mm-hmm. They were um, helping connect women with contraceptive services. And so they were building an entire service, medical service community, you know, for women who, who otherwise didn't have access. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. In a couple of weeks, just after your premiere, abortion will be curbed, most likely throughout many states. And it's a chilling reminder with this documentary. When you look at the work you've done, where does the root lie in the opposition? Is it the same as it was then? Religion, conservatism? What, what do you see? I don't know. I mean, if you talk to the to a lot of the Janes, they'll say it's, it's markedly different. It, it, it feels different. It's been co-opted by the conservative right. There's a level of shaming that's gone on over the last 50 years that is, I think one of them, maybe maybe it was Judith, described as, as mean, I mean, mean-spirited in a whole different way, diabolical. It seems to just make them crazy. It made them crazy. Roe made them crazy. And it, it, it sparked organizing on their side, um, blind with rage that women were given the autonomy over their own bodies. It seemed to um, create a whole new thing. I mean, obviously, we saw people in the 80s and the 90s literally shooting up abortion clinics, murdering doctors. Um, you know, that wasn't a thing you were seeing in the 60s. Yes, I think it's changed. I think the organizing has gotten more complicated and smarter. The trap laws are quite diabolical and smart. The width of a hallway, you know, 
means that an abortion clinic has to shut down. But there are things that are going to stay the same now, right, which is that when there isn't a law of the land, when this right isn't federally protected and this reverts to a state level, that the people that are going to suffer the most disproportionately are um, women of color, um, women from underserved communities, young women, rural women. Um, that's going to be the same. It's something as simple as not having a car. I mean, not having a car should not mean that you don't get access to base, basic health care. So the injustice of all of this, you know, is the same. What was uh, Heather Booth, one of the Jane's reactions, do you know, to the leaked draft? I think they were devastated. I think they were devastated. I mean, really, we, we're all devastated and we're all angry. But to have gone through what they went through to put on the line what they put on the line and then to experience the relief you know you see in the film row passes and there is you know they're reminiscing that relief they're feeling it again that relief they were 19 years old as you said and this wasn't their responsibility anymore and so to have that arc of emotions and then go on with your life and have your own kids and have your grandchildren um, and careers and write books and become midwives or all the things that these women did. And then to turn around and see it and see it revoked again, a right as hard as, as we try and as devastated and angry as we are, we're probably never quite going to get to the level that they are. There was a police raid. Yeah, they were, I mean, they, they were operating for four or five years evading the police, evading the mob, evading the Catholic Church. And, but, you know, the day came, May 2nd, uh, May 3rd, 1972, when they, their, their operations were raided and seven of them were arrested. And along with the women they were serving, they were brought to the, the police station. And the, the seven women faced up to 110 years in prison, multiple counts of abortion and conspiracy to commit abortion. And it was really only because of the coincidence of the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments in Roe and then deciding Roe, you know, the next year in January of 73, just a few months after their, their, their grand jury indictment, the charges were dismissed. But had it gone another way, we may never have gotten those interviews because right. they may still be in jail. They risked a lot. Some of them had... Which will happen again today with other people trying to help. Well, and it's worse. I mean, some of the laws yeah. that they've been passing um, and, and they're considering in certain states are actually far harsher, more punitive, more draconian than, than in the time before Roe. They are criminalizing interstate travel in some cases and subjecting women who, you know, find abortion care in other states to potential prosecution and penalties you know, prison time. They're subjecting doctors who serve women in other states to potential prosecution and prison time. They're incentivizing bounty hunters, you know, to, to enforce the laws of the state of Texas, which is insane, you know, and really cruel and, and egregiously wrong. You know, Alito in his decision that was leaked to Politico called Roe egregiously wrong in terms of its decision. And I think what they're creating right now 
is egregiously wrong. It's egregiously wrong that women will have to travel hundreds of miles if they can to get abortion care. It's egregiously wrong that some will have, you know, no other options but the back alleys or, you know, self-induced abortions. And, it, and it's egregiously wrong that women will die. Before I let you go, lastly, you spent time this time with them, with the documentary. What, what can we do? Well, Heather would say you have to stand up to illegitimate authority. When laws are wrong and laws are unjust, well, maybe those laws need to be broken. <laughs> We're not saying that necessarily, but I mean, that is the idea. These laws are unjust. Doling out health care based on these terms are unjust, not valuing women's lives. I mean, this is this is a breakdown of a democracy. It's it's a it's a really terrifying situation um, uh, of a, a, a culture war, which they think they have the moral high ground on. And it's just just certainly not true. So we don't have to change hearts and minds with this film. The majority of this country believes in a woman's right to choose. So I think the important thing is to speak up, to let their opinion and their voice be known, to hold the government and the court accountable. Perhaps that means doing a radio program, making a film, protesting in the street, opening your pocketbook, opening your home, being a, a decent, caring individual that doesn't, doesn't wanna see women, women dying in the streets. One of the things we can do is is watch your movie and be reminded. And um, thank you so much for that. And thank you for your time. I really thank appreciate you. it. And can I just add, there are organizations all over the country. There are abortion funds that are helping to defray the costs of travel for, for people who are looking to get abortion care. There are legal defense funds that are putting together monies to help in the defense of of providers, their abortion clinic escorts, you know, that are helping women deal with the wall of hate that they come up against in getting this medical care. And there's also national groups fighting on the on the legislative level. And um, we want everybody, the audiences who watch this film to plug into those organizations and to and, and, and to, there are many ways to get involved. No one needs to do what the Janes did you know, it's 2022, and I think there's a there's a myriad of ways to get involved in this issue and to fight for what's right. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much to directors Emma Pildes and Tia Lesson. The Janes premieres on HBO on June 8th. And thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. And you can leave comments and reviews on popcultureconfidential.com and I'll get back to you. Thanks so much. See you next time. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, Next Best Picture. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new 
for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. Thank you.